When I flew into Christchurch the weekend of the March 15 attack to help journalists however I could, there were some who were clearly weighed down by emotion. I could see the cracks. I was keen to provide support. Between shifts, the adrenaline was running high. Not many of them had slept. It was frantic and chaotic. It would have been understandable for them to embrace self-preservation, to emotionally distance themselves from the horror they were encountering in order to get through it. But they didn't. Talking to them, they understood that their job was to use the skills they bring to the table, information gathering and storytelling, to support the small Muslim community of Christchurch who had lost loved ones and to keep the nation informed. Their focus was the victims. Emotionally, they kept themselves open to the people they were encountering. When a journalist is feeling it, there's safety in the anonymity that comes with written reporting or the capturing of images. What you're feeling isn't on display. That veil isn't there when you've got a TV camera staring you in the face and it's your job to go live with the nation watching as the world feels like it's crumbling around you. I'm Frank Ritchie, media chaplain, minister, broadcaster. In this series of podcasts, I'm sitting down with Christchurch journalists who are on the front lines of that tragic historic day. These were people reporting on the losses of the Muslim community within their own city. Welcome to episode 3 of Friday Prayers. In this episode, I catch up with Lisa Davies, a reporter for TVNZ. As I, like many, watched the TV news, I was particularly struck by Lisa's reporting. Her emotion was visible. There were times when her eyes were glistening with tears. It was clear that she was feeling what was going on around her. I wanted to talk to her about it. Lisa, thank you so much for taking some time with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's lovely to be with you here, Frank. Now, Lisa, you you didn't start out as a journalist, did you? What, what did you do before journalism? Uh, are you talking about my... Your radio days. <laughs> my radio days as a DJ. Yeah. Uh, as in, in Queenstown, at Resort Radio in Queenstown. Had you dreamed of doing radio when you were young, or did that? how did that happen? I wanted to be a broadcaster, but I wasn't quite sure in which way. Yeah. And so I trained at broadcasting school in Christchurch and I did the radio course. So I trained to be a radio announcer basically um, and went and did that in Queenstown. But I found that really lonely sitting in a studio by myself for mm. hours on end playing music and talking to myself it felt like. And I there was an amazing journalist there at the time, Jenny McLeod, and I watched what she did and I thought that's actually what I want to do, get out and talk to people and meet people and tell stories that matter. Yeah. And so I retrained as a journalist. Wow. So you're telling me that a radio in Queenstown wasn't just one big raging party? <laughs> well, there was that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was definitely the upside. But I, I wanted, I just wanted more out of a job, something yeah. that I felt was going to make a difference. I love this. I love this because the very reason I enjoy radio is that I'm sitting in a studio on my own, generally. So it's good to hear. It's good We're to hear. different people. Yeah, it's good to hear someone got out of it I because got of that. <laughs> I like the sound of the idea that jumping into journalism, and I've encountered this in pretty much every journalist I've talked to uh, in my time as a, as a chaplain, is that sense of having a cause, that it, it means something. It's a little bit deeper. Uh, so obviously that that's what sat behind it for you, the shift? It did, and I think sometimes in this job it's frustrating because it feels like perhaps 
we're not using that power as perhaps we ideally would like to and then there are moments when you know you've made a difference mm. and that's I think what keeps people like me in the job for a long time mm. when you feel that whether it's that you've changed a situation for someone or you've been able to help convey their story so that people can understand what they go, they're going through. I think it's those moments that make it a job to love, really. Mm. I think there's a little bit in there that's really important because I've sat down with a number of journalists or people who curate uh, online news in particular so they can see what people are clicking on. They have a they have a deep love for good, solid news, news that tells meaningful stories. But they can see the stuff that people are clicking on. I sat down with one guy who knew that if he put up a Kardashian story in the day, it was kind of it was going to be the most clicked on story. So it's fascinating to hear you from a TV perspective say that you wonder sometimes if it's making a difference, and then every now and then you get to tell tell a story. I think we don't always have the time mm. to make it count, but when we do. I think that television news is a good way to really make people connect with a story, whether it's a bad story, a tragedy, or whether it's something good. Mm. You know, I think that medium of being able to see the pictures, hear it, watch someone speak, if you do it well, it's going to make people feel something, whether it's angry or sad or, you know, moved to help. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think TV brings an immediacy, a connection that that print doesn't. It's one thing to sit down and read a person's story, uh, even read comments from, say, a victim in a tragedy, uh, and then you get to layer your own emotional interpretation, or you imagine how they might have been felt as the saying that. Whereas in television, it's right, it's right there in front of you. Uh, I do sometimes warn people though, because. I feel that it's our responsibility to make people aware how many people might see their story. Mm. And there are some people whose stories we tell who may not, you know, that might become an added pressure for them. And so I think it's important to say this is going to be seen by a lot of people. Not everyone is going to understand where you're coming from. Mm. And don't read the comments. Yeah, yes. And that's stay, a big piece of advice I give a lot of comments. people. Always stay oh, away from the comments. And the social media. And it's a cesspool, eh? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we could talk a lot. We could talk a lot just uh, just about that. So in that comment, see, that that's new to me, uh, hearing a reporter say, this is going to be seen by a lot of people. Uh, do you, did they then have the choice to, to say, hey, I would rather not then? What do you do then? Everyone always has that right. Yes. And I, I, when I say I say that it's probably only in certain, certain circumstances where someone's already perhaps in quite a compromised position. And I just think that's our responsibility to not become part of their problem. Mm. That's really good. It's just what I believe. Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, I and I'm probably only talking about a minority. Yeah. But for some people, they really have to understand that they're going to get attention and sometimes it's not always good. Mm. Let's jump to March 15. Now, uh, how did the story start for you then? Um, I was just in the newsroom just after lunch that day and we heard that something had happened in Dean's Ave. Mm. Um, what you do in a newsroom, we hear things like this on a daily basis and it's often a judgment call. Do we go? Don't we go? You know, is it something or is it not? 
Uh, so I went uh, in the camera truck with Rebecca O'Sullivan, who's one of our camera people at TVNZ. And even as we were approaching Dean's Ave, we were getting more information uh, that it was at the mosque on Dean's Ave, which we hadn't previously known. Um, we heard that there were a number of people wounded and a number of casualties, but that was unconfirmed. And at that point, I actually um, held her hand in the camera truck because mm. we knew that it was one of those days that mm. we, it's our responsibility to move in and get close to what's happening, but it's still a day that we dread like mm. like the rest of the public, you know, we're still people doing our job. Um, yeah, but we kept going towards what was happening. You're going to make me teary. How? Sorry, Frank. <laughs> no, you're, no, you're good. <laughs> Usually I sit down, in my job, I sit down with people and often they end up in tears because I'm, I'm the person that they unpack with. So, uh, but just imagining you and others in that situation heading towards that, I find I find that incredibly moving myself as someone who has, to a degree, uh, quietly, anonymously dedicated my life to caring. Um, yeah, hearing that's a slightly big deal. How did you emotionally prep yourself? I mean, obviously, there's a bit of empathy and care for each other in that in that van. Then, as you're heading towards it, it's not just that hardened journalist. Oh, we're heading towards the story, getting all gung ho. How did you emotionally prepare yourself for what might be coming, not knowing exactly what was coming? I think we're far from gung ho. I think I always feel a responsibility for the people I'm working with. Um, you know, we arrived at the park and we parked up on the verge, I suppose, a block and a half from the mosque mm-hmm. um, and got out. Um, my adrenaline was through the roof. I was shaking. Um, police, armed police were there shouting at us to get out in no uncertain terms. Um, you know, there was a sense of panic mm. and they were running through the park with guns and I really felt like we were we should not be there, but we were there to do our job, and so we stayed. But the fact of the matter is we felt it, like we were in danger at that time. Of course, hindsight tells us that we no longer were, mm. but we didn't know that. The police didn't know that. The whole block had been shut off, and... We were there before the ambulance started leaving the mosque and so not long after we arrived the air was just filled with the sound of sirens as people were rushed to the hospital. How do you not run away? My, my instinct would be, to, well I hope, my, I hope my humanist instinct would kick in and I'd go and help people but there's a big part of me that says too I'd run away. How do you not run away? I think it's just our job and I think you can't underestimate the belief of a journalist and a camera person like Rebecca that it's our job to stay and tell the stories and the first person that we met was a man leaving the mosque just in his socks because obviously people ran during prayer Mm. and he was the first person that I interviewed who started to paint a picture of the horror that had unfolded um, 
and he talked of people who had been gunned down and were lying on the ground and he was walking to the hospital to try and find a relative. But I think as the wider public was finding out what was happening, so were we. Mm. Because on that day, the information was just coming piecemeal. So we, we had heard long before the number of casualties was confirmed how many, but to me, I felt quite strongly about not actually speaking of that on air until we knew, because for me, accuracy is so important in a situation like that. Um, and gradually, as we interviewed more people, the the horror of it became more real. Mm. Going to air, it's one thing to then write a story that goes to print or to pump out some information that, that's going to go out in, in words. That that comes with its own challenges. But then having to prep to put yourself in front of a camera in the middle of that, I would imagine, and I've never done it because I, I do radio, but I would imagine that's a, that's a real challenge. Uh, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that usually on a given day you've got time to put your story together, you go in front of the camera, you've got it prepped, you deliver it, you're done. Um, but in this, the story's unfolding right in front of you. It's heavy emotionally. How do you get yourself to that space where you can put yourself in front of the camera? Um, I mean, any breaking news situation calls for that mm. ability, but this was like... Mm-hmm. no other breaking news situation and as we were going live there was a, a neighbour of the mosque who drove out with wounded people in the back of the car um, we were seeing people come out you know with, with blood on their clothes people who were hysterical because they had come out but their family members were still inside and they didn't know whether they'd survived or even where they were. Mm. Um, and also at the back of our mind for everyone was that there was still potentially a threat because we still didn't know that. And yet we still did our job. And if you watch the footage, Rebecca would be filming people um, and then we'd be live again. It's almost a case of just doing our job, but in the worst of circumstances. Mm. What I really appreciated about your coverage uh, was that it dealt to it dealt to the cynical view that some might have that uh, as something like that's unfolding, there's the back of the TV brain that might go, "This is great TV." What I saw with you was a human being, and uh, just as you've done here, uh, you've allowed your humanity to come out in the tears that almost started to flow just before. That same thing was going on on the television. Mostly I just want to affirm that. That was a good thing. It was a good thing for New Zealand to see. Uh, I think it allowed permission for people to grieve. and it could have been very easy for you internally to distance yourself from it, to go cold and just give the information, but you didn't. So I, I want to say thank you. I just don't think that it's possible when you're right close to that level of human suffering and to that level of evil that we witnessed that day. I... I don't know anyone who wasn't working that day, journalist, photographer, camera person, who 
doesn't still carry with them what we saw and what we were witness to that day. And I've always said, um, you know, the day that I could be near a story like that and talk to people who've been affected by it, the day that I didn't feel something would be the day that I should stop. Mm. Because I just think we are human. Um, I know that there's a view that we should be removed and dispassionate and to tell the story in a professional way that isn't coloured by our personal perspective, but that just wasn't possible for me that day because what we were seeing, what we were being told was heartbreaking beyond my imagination. Mm. And I would say... Uh, that that idea of the fully objective journalist who isn't in the story at all is a is a myth. Um, I don't. I, there's part of me that thinks that that's not actually possible, and, and that it's not actually healthy. Um, so I love I love hearing a journalist who owns, owns their humanity in the middle of in the middle of the story. And you mentioned that there's stuff that you saw that will never leave you. What images stick out for you still? I think the main thing that stays with me, and it was later in the night actually, um, was an interview I did with a young woman, Yasmin Ali, and her uncle was missing. And she didn't know where he was, and she was with her mother and her aunt trying to find his whereabouts. And I did an interview with her, and she was incredible. And she said to me, we've been shot down like we're animals. Mm. And she said, I've never felt safe walking around wearing a headscarf. Mm. And she said, now I feel like it's not safe to be here. And that has always stayed with me. Mm. Um, just that, you know, that you aren't safe in your own home. It's just not right. And it was, yeah. I'll never forget talking to her on the cordon. Yeah. And we've kept in touch. Good. How's yeah. she doing now? She's doing well. She's a person who... Um, hasn't wanted to talk publicly again uh, with the anniversary approaching, which I mm. absolutely respect. But obviously, you know, people deal with uh, anniversaries of tragedies in such a different way. Yeah, it's true. It's true. How did you sleep that night? And each of the each of the people that I've spoken to so far didn't and didn't, didn't sleep. What did what did that night look like for you? I didn't sleep at all. Mm. Um, I got home quite late because I think we'd been live until maybe 10 at night. I'm not exactly sure what time. Um, and I couldn't sleep. Mm. How has it been processing it since? We're getting to the point where we're a year on 
So there's a chance for people who haven't processed things very well to for a lot of triggers to, to come up a year on with uh, threats occurring again, the possibility that something uh, could happen. These people are coming to a year where they've got the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of losing someone in tragic circumstances. How have you processed it to this point? Um, I'm still processing it. Mm. Um, and I probably always will. I just don't think that it's something that you can ever be at peace with. Mm. And I don't think anyone ever should be. Um, I've definitely cried a lot about it. Good. Um, and of course, as you say, with the anniversary approaching, I'm talking to a lot of people again who I've kept in touch with, but... It does, I think the emotions do resurface. It starts to feel quite fresh again, and I think that that's not uncommon mm. with anniversaries. It's probably partly why they're marked, although obviously traditionally the Muslim community doesn't necessarily mark anniversaries in this way, although I know that uh, the Al-Nur Imam has said that he does embrace this idea of an annual public anniversary service. Mm. What have you learnt about the Muslim community since this? Because it was a relatively unknown community to most New Zealanders, still largely is relatively unknown, but there's been a lot that's been encountered as well, uh, from going, from seeing them as probably all the worst stuff around terrorism and all the caricatures and the stereotypes that get created to, I think, seeing a wonderfully rich, forgiving community. Um, what have what have you learnt about them through all this? I have been overwhelmed by the power of religion. Actually, mm-hmm. um, just a couple of days after the shooting, I interviewed an amazing woman who lost her husband and her child in the shooting, and I met with her and. She said to me that she is at peace with what has happened because they are martyrs. Mm. And by being martyred in the mosque guarantees her family paradise. Mm. And her, the calm around her, given what she had just lost, was overwhelming mm. to me. And I found it incredible. And that's not to say she wasn't suffering, because of course, mm. of course, it's you, you can't even comprehend that type of loss and to lose people you love in that way. But that strength of belief, mm. I I walked away from that, and it almost upset me to have been with someone who was that calm in the face of such a terrible thing happening to her family. Mm. It is, a, as a religious person, it is a phenomenal thing. And uh, I would hope that someone's faith, and obviously it didn't in that case, doesn't do away with the strength of the suffering and the, the raw grief that can come, but that uh, hearing about that peace and that calm um, is something that I would hope for for my own community. Uh, there's a, there's a, 
there's a different way that I relate to it too. As a minister who oversees a, a church, uh, that idea that someone could step into a place of worship um, and open fire uh, comes with a different different layer as well. So it's almost um, honouring uh, to hear you acknowledge and, and see that, to actually see it, not just be in awe of it, but to see where it's come from. Um, so bravo. <laughs> Lisa, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure. I didn't know what to expect from this discussion. Uh, I've had a little, I've followed you a little bit on Twitter, and I see we're now following each other on Instagram <laughs> yes. as well. But I had no idea what to expect. But this is uh, has blown me away. Um, I knew that there'd be a sense of softness and empathy uh, there, but you've uh, certainly shown that to a degree that I think um, just reflects a wonderful side of journalism that people don't usually get to see. Uh, the whole hope is that there'd be people listening in to this who, who aren't overly aware of journalism. If there's anything that you could have them know about what you do and what your colleagues do, uh, what, what would you say? I think that there's a natural scepticism mm. um, about a journalist's motives. Um, I'm not saying that they're... they're should always be absolute trust. But I know a lot of journalists and I think that on the whole, as a group, we have a strong moral compass in terms of Mm. telling people's stories honestly and accurately and not sensationalising them. And often people will say, gosh, you know, you you did a good job, that wasn't as bad as I thought. (laughs) (laughs) I think what I would say is we're not as bad as people think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's really good. There are are aberrations and everybody gets things wrong sometimes, but yeah, and that would be my reflection. And hopefully people listening would trust me somewhat as a minister, though that's not necessarily the case these days uh, either. But every journalist I've encountered in the work that I do has, has been fabulous, been wonderful people with exactly that, a moral compass, a great sense of justice and cause and wanting to do right in the world. Yeah, Lisa, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Frank. That was Lisa Davies. Our thanks goes to NZME Christchurch for providing the space and equipment to be able to record that conversation. In the next episode, I chat with George Hurd, a visual journalist for Stuff at the time, now working as a camera operator for News Hub. As someone early on the scene, George captured images that due to what they contain will probably never see the light of day 